This is Speaking Freely with the ACLU of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Hoover, your host and director of communications at the ACLU of PA. For this episode, our 30th, I talked with Bobby Harris, who is an organizer with Just Leadership USA working out of their Philadelphia office. Bobby is a stakeholder in reforming the criminal legal system because he was incarcerated for 29 years. In our conversation, we cover a lot of ground, including his experience as an incarcerated person, the power of redemption, the lack of comprehensive victim advocacy in Pennsylvania, and where reform is most needed. By the way, I misspoke at one point in our conversation. I said that several years ago, Pennsylvania was paroling 1,000 people per year. I meant to say that we were paroling 1,000 people per month. With that said, let's hear from Bobby Harris. Well, Bobby, thanks for taking the time to talk. I really appreciate the chance to, to hear your experience and, and your insights. Um, let's start with the fact that you are a stakeholder in reforming the criminal legal system because you've had direct experience with that system. Tell us about, about your experience. Well, my experience is that at the age of 15, I went to prison for murder, and I was sentenced to a life sentence, meaning I was sentenced to die in the penitentiary for my level of involvement in the murder of an individual. Uh, I went through prison, and while inside of prison, I was moved around from prison to prison. The reason was because I didn't want to feel comfortable. I didn't want to feel as though it was my home, so I didn't become comfortable. So I'd done everything to enhance myself. But I grew up in an environment where as though my actions was a reflection of what that neighborhood produced mm. on a daily. Criminal activity. Not everybody in that neighborhood gets caught up in that, but some are subjected to it. I was subjected to, you know, experience that from selling drugs, enhanced it to me being involved in, you know, an individual losing his life and me being sentenced at the age of 15 to that life sentence. And I served the total, you know, ranging right there, 29 years. And I was released in November the 5th. 2017. I call that my revolution because that's the day the French Revolution was. So, right. The concept of the dual victim is an idea that is getting more and more traction. It's the reality that there are people in our communities who have lost loved ones to violence and they have loved ones who are incarcerated. Your own biography includes that experience. Why do you think it's important for stakeholders in the criminal legal system to understand that concept? One thing I'm, I'm, I'm going to say regarding the dual victims is, you know, whether it's coming from, you know, the victim advocacy people or those of us in the advocacy for criminal justice reform, to be an advocate, you have to have a particular cause or principle that drives you to address a cause or the policies of something. That means answering to the people. So when we're looking at victims, we're living in a society where everybody is victimized one way or another, never minimizing the people that are victims of robbery, never minimizing the level of impact and trauma that's affecting the family when it comes to murder. I'm first and foremost at the forefront of stating my life is for the victim in my case. That's Terrence Smith. I states his name. 
because I refused to minimize it as my actions did in 1989. However, there's individuals in our communities that's dual victims. Mm -hmm. And dual victims means that they have experienced some level of trauma or violence as well. My life is that, as you mentioned in my biography. You know, at the age of seven, I witnessed my mother murder. And, you know, just recently, and that was at the risk assessment here, and I decided to testify before the committee regarding that issue and how it affected me. At seven years old, I became suicidal. Mm. You know, I didn't know how to deal with, you know, the situation of my mother being murdered. Only thing I knew how to do was something I don't know how I, you know, formulated those thoughts was to kill myself in order to return to my mother because she was the love of my life. So I tried to commit suicide twice at the age of seven. So that goes to the level of trauma that impacted me and my family who didn't know how to address that situation. The best thing for them was to minimize their tears, you know, to try to suppress that pain and just get over it. However, none of us got over it, but it was reflective in my life because I went from house to house because they didn't know how to heal from it. You know, and house to house led me from street corner to street corner, mm -hmm. which eventually led me to the penitentiary. There was never an issue of finding treatment or resources because I come from a poverty environment. But more importantly, my household was the manifestation of manufactured poverty. That's what my household looked like mm -hmm. as a child. So when we're speaking about dual victims, as I said, society produced this. But society has an answer as well, and that's to address it. You can never say that a person that comes from violence and then eventually act out in a violent way is unworthy of being recognized as a human being, first and foremost, let alone their family members. To sit there and say that because if my grandmother was still living, to say that she don't want the protection or the assistance from the victim advocacy groups, and I'm going to mention particularly Jennifer Storm, because that's what we're referring to, who's at the forefront of saying or making a statement that if a person, you know, family member was, you know, convicted of a homicide, and they also had that by law, that individual or individuals don't matter when it comes to the law. That's a bold statement, mm -hmm. you know. So that means that my grandmother would not be included in anything that's coming from an advocacy group that's supposed to address a particular cause or policies affecting victims. So I think that's a, that's a bad mistake she made, but I don't believe it was a mistake. It was intentional, and it's reflective on what type of behavior patterns exist within her. Mm -hmm because she's declaring something that's law. So when there's a law in existence that can actually say that if you have a situation as a dual victim, you don't matter, then that's a broken system. And if you represent and uphold that system, then you're responsible as the official representative of it because you're the chief person that's promoting it. So. How do we address that? I believe we need to demand the governor take a real thorough look at her 
But that look cannot be just, I'm going to look at you and I'm going to minimize that or erase that. That's something embedded in that woman. I pray that she grow out of that because in our neighborhood, particularly, and it was directed towards Philadelphia. You know, we look at Philadelphia, we got 47 zip codes. But 11 of them makes up nearly 90% of the, the prison population. Mm -hmm. So that's manufactured oppression. You're talking about Jennifer Storm, who's the state victim advocate. It's a gubernatorial appointment um, that she has been in for now almost six years. And there was a there was a dust up after a, a news story was printed a few weeks ago, um, just to bring our listeners into to the full detail. It sounds to me like what you're getting at is the need for comprehensive victim advocacy. Was that, is that a proper phrase? I would agree with you 100%. Yeah. Because when you're looking at it, a victim is someone that have been victimized, no matter what. So when you're looking at people in our communities, particularly, because it's not a Philadelphia thing, but people outside of Philadelphia looks at it that way. Well, that's just a Philadelphia thing. Well, Philadelphia has a right to express themselves as Allegheny County, as Erie, Pennsylvania, Montgomery County, Berks County, you know, Scranton, Wilkes-Barre, or any other county throughout the state of Pennsylvania. So when you're talking about these victims or dual victims, how can you actually say there's no value in the advocacy group for the victim's office to express a concern and provide assistance or resources to them? It's hard for a person in the city of Philadelphia to even pay for a funeral when their child is murdered. Mm -hmm. So if that family happens to have someone that committed a murder, her position is that you do not qualify underneath of the Victim Compensation Act, according to her statement. Now, is it right? No. Should it be changed? Absolutely. But it's a comprehensive approach that must be taken, and it can't come from a person that has a position already embedded in herself that clearly draws the line. You do not matter when it comes to the victim's office. I want to come back to your discussion of the challenges you faced after your mother was killed. And before we hit record, we were discussing an incident recently in Philadelphia, and you talked a little bit about the lack of the education system. It seems that using your own experience as a guide, what's missing here is structure that supports people. And you, it seems to me like you're suggesting that you can address criminal activity and behavior at the front end by providing more education, more access to health care, whether it's uh, physical or mental health. Am I accurate in, in that description? And I will add with that resources. Mm -hmm. You know, the proper way to fix a problem is to put your hands in the pot. Whether you get scorned, so be it. It comes with it. It's part of the territory. I didn't grow up in no soft cotton ball bag. I grew up in a rough environment. You know, but it helped and shaped me with principles and character to be the individual that I am today. And I stand on that point. So when we're talking about reinvesting in the educational system when we were speaking earlier, like there's, there's a devaluing of humanity in our neighborhood coming from the educational perspective. Mm -hmm. When you have the city can shut down 13 schools, you know, now that means you have devalued those entire communities. And as I mentioned to you, my elementary school, 
you know, they tore it down and they built a playground on that ground. Mm -hmm. And it's looking like a prison ground yard. I know what they look like. I lived in them. I walked in them. Mm -hmm. But how can you actually tear a school down and put it into a playground structure for the children to go play in with a monkey bar and two swings and a bunch of gates? That's like a maze. So when you're looking at it, resources. People fear our communities because they don't know our communities. Mm -hmm. They fear our communities because we're the unknown subjects, but yet we are known subjects. When I say known, meaning that we're not the people that they want around them. We're not the people that they want in the position that elevates themselves, enhance themselves, better themselves, produce and manufacture things for themselves. So they put us in a position where as though we're easily led into destruction because there's nothing there. So when you have individuals coming across the city of Philadelphia that has the ability to address those issues, what they do, they don't support them. So the type of support that they may, may need is not there. Although we look at our city when, you know, what was this, like six months ago, you know, we was looking at the city of Philadelphia with a surplus of like $700 million. However, how much of that money is actually reinvested back into communities that's directly impacted by mass incarceration, or better yet, direct incarceration, mm -hmm. because it's directly affected towards the black and brown people of Philadelphia. So when we have people in official positions that don't use those resources to enhance the quality of life for people in our communities, then they're manufacturing poverty, they're manufacturing criminal activity. And when they do that, they are dictators for destruction. So that's one thing that we have to actually do, all of us in the activist field, you know, the community organizers, we have to organize real strong, we have to organize real hard, and we have to be able to learn how to sweat with a smile on our face. That's my position towards that. And that's what shaped and molded me to be studious, to continue doing what I'm doing. And I haven't reached that level. Mm -hmm. I'm learning from everyone. Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, even from the ACL, I love Anissa. When she speaks, I think she's going to cry mm -hmm. because she's always passionate yeah. on what she's speaking on. But we got other people throughout the city of Philadelphia that has that. But we don't get the resources we need. Mm -hmm. But let something needs to be developed down. They got a nice, beautiful mall they're creating. They invested in that. You have schools torn down. They won't reinvest for that. We got over 40,000 abandoned properties across the city of Philadelphia. They won't invest and allow those that's returning back from prison the opportunity to rehab those buildings. Mm -hmm. We can end homelessness. We can end you know, inequality on employment opportunities. But there's no desire to invest in black people. So you spent 29 years in prison. What should people know about what life is like inside prison? That's a good question. <laughs> What do people believe they know about life inside prison? They believe one thing. Prison is a place where people who done something wrong belong. They don't believe in the possibilities of growth and development. They don't believe the achievements individuals make once they are in prison. And while in prison, they desire to change themselves for the better whether it's coming from the Department of Corrections programming or it's coming from a self-initiative from the individuals or other individuals throughout those prisons that sit there and actually mentor individuals to be better. You have an element 
you know, inside the prisons where the, nobody wants to see their family hurt. But it's not heard of. Mm-hmm. There's an element that nobody see or hear about where individuals take the opportunity to better themselves. So in doing so, they wind up teaching other people inside the prisons how to enhance that. Reflect your growth and development as a man or woman. And that's something that they don't see. So it's not so much about what they know about the prison. It's about what they don't know. Individuals that's in there that the administration, the DOC, who would approve of returning back to society because the individual have served a number of years. That's long, 30, 40 years. And they are no longer the individuals that they once were. That's what redemption is. You know, not I mean, where's though? A person, you know, saving an individual from their errors, their sins, or their evil. That exists, mm-hmm. but it's unheard of. They just believe that the prison is where you go and we got guards watching, overseeing them. However, the prisons are ran by the prisoners. When I say ran by the prisoners, meaning from the meals that the guards eat mm-hmm. to the prisoners eat. You know, from the structure of, you know, buildings with masonry, the electricity, you know, plumbing, all of this the prisoners do. But they entrust the prisoners. You're not just walking up on the job site if there's no level of trust. But that level is unknown because nobody speaks about it. But we're trying to do it. Organizations like Just Leadership up with us at Close the Creek, CABI, you know, MMP with Hannah and them or whatever. And mm-hmm. I mean, the ACLU. Mm-hmm. All of us have stories of individuals that's inside them prisons that we can share, but nobody wants to hear them. So we're compelled to make sure that everybody hears us. Well, and to that point, I understand that the concept of redemption is important to you. I read a news article that reported that the judge at your resentencing was surprised, pleasantly surprised, by your acknowledgement of the family of Terrence Smith. How did you get to that place, and what role do you think redemption has in the conversation about criminal legal reform? Like I said, redemption, the ability to save an individual from their errors, their sins, or evil. It takes time for that mature level mm. to reach an individual, but it does exist. And the thing about it, for me, it took some time. When I first went in, oh, I was angry. And it may be shocking for people to hear when I say what helped me to survive in prison was hatred. Mm. I hated that I allowed people to write my story. I hated that I allowed myself to be placed in this situation where I was incarcerated and sentenced to die in prison. I hated that I went into the prisons with a third grade, you know, educational level. I hated that I didn't have family that was willing to support me because they didn't know how to support themselves. I hated that I was watching other individuals walk around me that was blind, deaf, and dumb to the same foolishness that led all of us to become misfits one way or another in our community. So that level of hatred allowed me to make a transition. I said, no, I'm going to beat that narrative. I'm going to change it myself, and no one will write my story ever again. So redemption happened when I decided to change myself. I said, I'm going to be better, and I'm supposed to live. So I hated everything that kept me away from living life. Not in the sense that you think of hatred, 
but in the sense that I wasn't content with believing that the ruling that Albert F. Sabo handed down on me was forever inside those prisons. So when the judge, the Honorable Streeter, when she made that statement, you know, she had made mention about how many times I mentioned Terrence Smith by name. I stated earlier, I live my life, I can't bring him back. If I could, I would. Mm -hmm. I can't bring him back. But I can show through my actions, my thoughts and deeds, that it means something, and I got it. I got it where as though I know how to live my life better. But more importantly, I live my life for the people that's in prison and the people that's out here in society that deserve something better than what's projected in our communities. So she saw that in me. She saw that in the work I was involved in inside of those prisons. It wasn't so much of what my lawyers was able to express, but it was more so my lawyer was expressing what helped me. And what helped me was individuals in them prison that took a vested interest in Bobby Harris. Mm. They said, no, nah, we see more in you. So they helped cultivate me, shape me, mold me to be the man that I was neglecting to be as a little teenager. So I spoke about the victim with that level of remorse because I live it and I put my life on it. Part of that process for you um, included working with a group called the Life Association while you were incarcerated. What is the Life Association? What kind of work does that group do? The Life Association, the acronym stands for Life Isn't Forever. That was the organization at SCI Dollars where I served as the president. And the thing about that, the organization comes up with programs and sponsor programs from criminal justice reform, parole eligibility for lifers, uh, mentoring programs, humanitarian work done through charitable donations to the outside, you know, society. Mm -hmm. And everything that the prisoners do in those organizations are reflective of the individual's potentials of growth and development. I can never stop or minimize saying the growth and development because these organizations are allowed to be up and running in the prison system in Pennsylvania because the administration have seen them do tremendous things. Mm -hmm. Whether it's coming from donating money to the victim advocacy, that's something Jennifer Storm may not mention. I signed those checks. Mm -hmm. But numerous of other organizations, because inside of the organization, it's about teaching you what redemption is, what empathy is, learning how to cope with your crime, but more importantly, how to express yourself in a way to help heal that so that no one else will have to go through that problem as best as possible that you can. So the organizations at, you know, SCI Dallas and numerous other prisons with the Life of Associations or some other ones like Life Isn't Forever uh, or the Lifeline at Cole Township, these organizations really do work that's untold. They do work, as I mentioned, on mentoring. When there's a problem with violence in the jail, it's not the older population, it's not the older prisoners, but the administration comes to the older population, the older prisoners, the mm -hmm. lifers, and asks them to intervene. We need your help to stop this game war. We need you to help prevent these young kids from out here fighting about a basketball game. So they allow us to create mentoring programs, and these mentoring programs are very effective. I'm talking about so much so that they honor them. 
This is the Department of Correction, which is untold mm -hmm. out here in society. You know, doing research, creating ad hoc committees for helping individuals litigate their cases. You know, all of that is underneath the umbrella of the Lifers Association across the state of Pennsylvania. Potentials, options, resources that exist inside the prison to help make the prison atmosphere a lot better, as well as to cultivate that ground for individuals returning. And these men and women inside these organizations, they're sentenced to die. They don't have no release date, but they do it. Mm -hmm. Why? That's part of their growth and development. That's part of that level of empathy. That's part of them maturing into men and women inside a prison that's sentenced to die and have no release date, but get up every day and they function in the capacity that they do in these organizations to mentor, encourage, facilitate over programs, thinking for a change. You know, uh, the citizen, returning citizen program, anger management. All of these programs are over, overseen or facilitated by prisoners. So, Bobby, you were resentenced to 28 years to life and you were paroled in 2017. So that means you are on parole for the rest of your life. What is your life like now? What is it like for someone who's on parole? That's a good question. And the reason I said what, what my life is like is about work. That's doing the work that I'm doing. I have yet to develop or to formulate a life outside of the criminal justice reform circle. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to experience that yet. I'm, I'm, I'm learning. I'm, I'm really learning on that. And it's, it's a lot of restrictions, you know, that exist for an individual that's on parole. But it's even more restrictions when you know you're on parole for the rest of your life. I'm only 46. So that means, once again, I'm still serving a life sentence. When I die is when I'm able to be off of supervision. And that's a hardship because no matter what, if I have to go to work somewhere, my job sends me around to different, you know, states. You know, the company is headquartered in New York. In order to go see my boss, you know, the person that owns this, the head of this, I have to ask for permission. If they deny me permission, I could lose my job because I cannot meet certain, you know, obligations. And Bansdale, one example is, you know, Bansdale, this is uh, an organization that's ran from out of New York. We under New York rules and regulations when it comes to certain training. Mm -hmm. For example, workplace environment on harassment. It's mandatory in the state of New York that all employees go through these trainings. So I have to leave Philadelphia to go to New York in order to receive the training on how to have a you know, workplace environment, you know, with the absence of any harassment, discrimination, you know, prejudice or bias. But if my agent happens to say no, then I cannot go. And that is a hardship with limitations. You know, so that goes, that goes towards the grain of still keeping me incarcerated. Yet, I know if you ask my agent, you know, that she would mention that. She don't believe I need supervision for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And that's because she have taken a vested interest in evaluating me, an invested interest in learning who I am, watching me, observing me, you know, as it is for numerous other individuals, 
that's on parole for the rest of their lives as well. These agents have watched us, but none of us are reoffending nor receiving, you know, certain infractions for violating certain rules and regulations. Don't nobody want to go to prison. Don't nobody want to go back. Right. But yet these rules are in place that makes it very hard. You know, I have to, you know, leave work early because the restrictions of me being on parole for the rest of my life to meet with my agent. I have to meet with my agent from 4 o'clock till 10 o'clock. And in meeting with her, she's not able to get to see me until around about 10 o'clock because where I live. Mm -hmm. And it takes me an hour to get home. So I'm leaving my job. When I leave my job, I'm, I'm subjecting myself to no pay. When I'm leaving my job, I'm subjecting myself to the hardship of rushing to get home because of the distance. Mm -hmm. And taking 95, you know, it's crazy at times. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I do it because I refuse to fail. But more importantly, it's because a hardship is right there. And I have to sit in the house from 4 o'clock till 10 o'clock when I could be at work or I could be out enjoying myself, going out for dinner, you know, or something like that. Even when it comes to therapy, I have to inform. You know, that was something that I did willingly on my own. It was encouraged, but I went out and sought therapy just to cope with society mm -hmm. because I don't have a life outside of work. So for me, I have to report that to my agent. Well, I'll be here at such and such time. You know, if I had to go to Harrisburg to speak to any politicians, which is required, I have to ask for permission to go speak to the politicians, you know, that may be requesting me to come to their offices or to speak to them regarding the criminal justice or any legislation that they're seeking to pass, mm -hmm. whether it's employment, you know, housing or anything. So it is very much a hardship. But one thing I think for us, and when I say us, meaning those of us that was juveniles, we refuse to fail because we refuse to go back to prison. We're learning how to live out here, but we prepared ourselves how to live out here if we was afforded an opportunity. So with those restrictions, we don't allow them to bog us down, but they do hurt. They do block and prevent. And this is an important conversation, I think, too, and, and for the two of us to get this out to anybody listening to this, because there is a debate that is about to start brewing at the state capitol about parolees and who gets parole. There have been several homicides that have allegedly been committed by people on parole, and the Corrections Officers Union is using that as a hammer to try to convince legislators to further restrict allowing people to get out on parole. I don't know what the number is today. I know years ago that we were paroling probably 1,000 people a year. So if three or four or five did something harmful, clearly there's another 995 mm -hmm. each month uh, or 1,000 a month who are trying to do what you're doing, which is get out here and figure out you know, how to live my life in this system and not cause that kind of trouble. So what's your reaction? I mean, I assume you've been following this um, to some degree? To some degree. Yeah. I have read on that when they was, and, and I believe it was uh, Secretary Wessel who mentioned that, you know, there's a high number of people that does not reoffend. Mm 
mm-hmm. you know, or have not reoffended that was paroled just because. And I think it was one per- person that, you know, uh, wound up murdering his sister and, you know, nephew and niece or something like that or whatever, you know. Like you say with that number, if it's a thousand, let's go with that. It's a thousand and you have five people out of a thousand. You still have 95, you know, uh, you know, 995 individuals that has not. What made it so successful for that 995 not to reoffend? Mm-hmm. You're not going to be able to get everybody, you know, to not reoffend, but it is a possibility that you could minimize that. And I do believe they have minimized it to a degree that has been very beneficial because look at the juvenile lifers, for example. How many have reoffended when they actually sat there and spoke and said they are murderers? Those are the harsh words. I mean, that speak towards the crime. But yet and still, no one is running around the city of Philadelphia or any of the other counties that has been released, reoffending or violating. Ain't nobody being stabbed. Ain't nobody being robbed. Mm-hmm. Ain't nobody being murdered. We're looking at the state that has the most juvenile lifers in the world. My main way is, though, and that's over 500 juvenile lifers. I think it's somewhere around about 400 has already been resentenced or whatever, probably another 100 still going up for resentencing, you know, or waiting for parole eligibility, but no one is doing any crime. Right. So just because we have five individuals that happen to slip, what grade do you give that? Really, you know, right. and I mean, people, people, you know, sit there and say, well, the, you know, the, the correctional officers union, they saying, let's come up with stricter. That's their job. That's their job to say that because yeah. we have become the capital of the, you know, societies that exist around in these counties with prisons being built in the counties outside of our own neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. So we're the capital. And I mean, so they want to keep the capital available as long as possible so that they can make their money and make their overtime. But when you're looking at it, the parole board, I believe when Rob, uh, 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 what was Mr. Leo Dunn, he had made mention about individuals at a meeting at SCI Dallas when I was there. He spoke about how the weight of it rests with us, meaning the juvenile lifers. He said the weight of it rests on us, on being a reflection for everybody else that comes after us, whether or not they're lifers, non-juvenile lifers, or individuals that's going through the parole board period. He said, but the percentage was 0.8% for a third degree murder victim to reoffend. I mean, he said, that is amazing. He said, we will not be able to get everyone. And this coming from the director of the probation and parole board, Mr. Right. Leo Dunn at the time. Mm-hmm. Does his remark go uncounted? Does the remarks of, or, or studies and reports of numerous other individuals and other agencies throughout the Department of Correction goals overlook? Now, I mean, it's saying there's no value in it. You just hear the guards union. They have a right to say that because they're talking about putting food on their tables with the capital, yeah. with the capital. You said two things there that I wanted to address. One is this concept of um, parolees potentially going back and then connecting that back to your restrictions as someone who is on parole. There is a fair number of people per year, several thousand, who are going back for technical violations, things that are not crimes if they were not on probation or parole. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you can explain that system a little bit and how, you know, it just it seems like it creates tripwires for folks that they just end up back in for things that they're not actually creating harm in their community, 
they're just they slipped up somewhere along the way in following the rules. It does. You have a large number of individuals that's going back to prison for technical violations. Even when I believe it's in the county, it's something like over 60% of people are in there for technical violations. And when you're looking at that, you have to realize what the violations are. I'm going to use an example of a friend of mine named Schoon. You know, did 23 years. However, he was reprimanded and placed on an ankle monitor because he would leave his home at 6 o'clock in the morning mm -hmm. in order to go to work. Mm -hmm. So if he wanted to go to work up in King of Prussia, where he was working at, he had to leave out the house at 6 o'clock because he had to catch three buses. Oh, wow. So the hardship was that you can find another job or you wait until after 6 o'clock and allow them to hire you at a later date. Who has that luxury? You know, so what, what happened was he had an ankle monitor on him, mm. you know, because of that. Because he's trying to live by the rules and regulations set by the parole and probation board. You know, so that was a hardship. Not many ways, though, so when you're looking at it to your question, that's what exists. But it's those type of technical violations that send people back. You may have an issue with your, where's the, your curfew, 9 o'clock at night. If you happen to get in by rule, by policy, if you get in at 901, it's a violation. Mm -hmm. Not everybody have a car. Not everybody know how to ride a car. Then you have traffic. That is not taken into consideration. You know, whereas though your agent, if he or she happens to wants to be, you know, a pencil with it, I'm going to use that terminology, you know, then they'll violate you. You're one minute late. You didn't call in. Mm -hmm. That's a hardship. You know, a person that may have an addiction, that's a hardship. You know, they have an addiction to Oxycontin or marijuana or whatever because they have a gunshot wound. You know, you're not speaking about addressing the needs. You're speaking about the punishment part of it. Mm -hmm. You know, but that person needs treatment. There's no treatment that's working effectively in the city of Philadelphia. And I'll state that again. It's no treatment working effectively when you have 60 or over 60% of the county jails with violators of marijuana or drug addiction. No treatments are working, so you need to restructure that. And you need to clean them out because you're spending 30 to 40 something thousand dollars a year to house them for their problems of addiction so it don't work. Right. But it can send you back to prison. So that's the hardship of you know those rules and regulations when it comes to parole and probation. Yeah. That exists. So you are working for Just Leadership as an organizer. What is the mission of Just Leadership and what are your priority issues right now? Working for Just Leadership, my priorities, I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I'm going to lay that out latter part. All right. Working towards ending the prison population by cutting it in half by the year 2030. Mm -hmm. Some people actually sit there and say that, you know, that's a hard push. Why fight less? Why push for less? We want, we're really pushing for more, you know, but we're, we're setting a number right there. And we're striving very hard and effectively to cut the prison population. You have over 2 million people incarcerated in the United States. You know, that's a population. They are lost citizens of our society. You know, and when you're looking at it, as we're speaking about those with addictions that's in there, misdemeanors, nonviolent offenses, individuals going to prison receiving 20, 30 years or whatever, individuals going to the store, you know, and they may rob somebody and receive a life sentence because that does exist in our country. 
you can go to go to the store and rob somebody for something or the store for a dollar or ten dollars mm-hmm. and you can actually receive a life sentence so looking at these mandatory sentences is an issue for us looking at the use of these electronic monitors which becomes hardship on individuals you can't get a job because the employer may be a little biased or prejudiced towards you because you have on an EM. He don't want your presence in his establishment with an ankle monitor on him or her. So they'll discriminate against you. But more importantly, it still incarcerates you. One way is just an electric, you know, electronic, you know, incarceration opposed to defense. We're actually opposed any risk assessment that's used from this algorithm system to determine who's going to be a criminal or how long an individual should serve in the prison based upon our color, based upon our zip code, based upon our economic level, based upon the levels of trauma that our families and us have gone through. So using that as a racist system, and it should not be used. So we oppose the usage of that completely on anyone evaluating on who's a risk in our community based off of a electronic monitoring and stripping the human potential to use that ability. You know, our heart sends one and a half pint of blood up to our brain every hour. <laughs> we have brain. Our brain's built and built these systems, but yet you want to leave it to this system that's going to point me here, point me here, or point me because I witnessed my mother being murdered. That's a point against me. My zip code, a point against me. You know, my family structure, broken home, that's a point against me. That's a racist system, and it should not be used. We also uh, successfully, you know, uh, fought and was able to obtain a house of correction to be closed and shut down. Now, that's, the prison, that's a jail in Philadelphia. That's a jail in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. and it was one of the oldest running jails. And successfully, we was able to get that shut down with our partners and everybody throughout the city of Philadelphia that was right there with us and understood what the fight was. However, we're trying to have it demolished. You know, and the reason demolished because we have seen throughout history of old jails closing and then reopening, and then bodies are placed right back up in there. Mm-hmm. You know, we say thank you to the mayor and shutting that down. But it needs to be demolished because when he's out of office, another mayor can come into office and actually say, I'm going to repopulate that jail. Go in there and clean it up a little bit, and I'm going to put bodies back up in there. So we believe that it needs to be demolished. I mean, and something should be created right there that gives back to the communities that was directly impacted by mass incarceration, or as I said earlier, direct incarceration. Why not build and turn it into an educational center? You can rebuild that. And that's one of the things that we're doing at Close Decree. We're pushing an agenda where we're, though, we're telling from the city shutting down that school, I mean, that jail. Why not allow us to take that $15 million, which is allegedly quoted on saving? <laughs> not coming from any other, you know, areas of the budget for the city of Philadelphia to run and function, but just from the closing of that one jail, it's reported that it saved the city $15 million per year. Why not take that $15 million and reinvest it back into those areas that was directly impacted, particularly those 11 zip codes, coming for North Philadelphia, coming for West Philly, South Philly, Southwest Philly, Germantown, Frankfurt, you know, Kensington, all up in there. Invest those funds back into communities that need the resources. Invest it back into the educational quality or the quality of an education. I remember Malcolm X one time said, the entire country of America is a prison. Hmm. 
Why not open those gates of the prisons in our society and allow society to be able to live in Philadelphia with those funds? So this is one of the things that we're pushing with a community resource hub that will provide everything from IT training, you know, mentoring, job readiness, housing, employment, all over. And some of the people that we have actually communicated are providing this or will provide this pro bono, teaching individuals how to get into the IT. So that's one of the other areas we are in with community reinvestment. But it must come from the elected officials that's in office being genuine and really being held accountable to the funds that exist in the city of Philadelphia, but particularly to the closing of that one jail. We ain't talking about no other funds, just that. Yeah. That's $15 million, but it's not being invested in those communities that need it the most. Well, and this issue is happening at the state level as well, where the DOC has announced that they're going to close SCI retreat, and the reaction you get from legislators in Luzerne County is, uh, we don't want this to close because of the economic impact mm -hmm. on our community. Now, I, you know, I, to some degree, I understand why legislators want to defend jobs, but the jobs are keeping people in a prison. Absolutely. You know, and, 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 it, and it just seems like there's better use of that money in that space than keeping people in prison. It is. If it's about economic, you have so many economic brains out here. You can bring jobs to those areas. It doesn't have to be incarceration or mass incarceration mm -hmm. that you look at as the booming economy for a retreat. Because up there by retreat, you have retreat, you have Dallas, you have Frackville, you have Monahoy, you have Cole Township, you have five state penitentiary. Right. Well, actually, we can throw Waymark up in there. In that area, that region, you have you know up to six state penitentiaries up in there. So it's about a big dollar, the economy. You know, that's what we are, the economy. So they're pushing the jobs as an issue. The jobs for who? The guards union. The, job, the guards union, they can find jobs like everybody else. When you know that you're populating so many people in the area of retreat prison, particularly, that has minor offenses where other beds are available at other prisons, you know, if, if need be. You know, I'm not for, you know, putting people in one prison to a next or whatever, but I'm saying that prison is being operated and function in that area to keep the economic structure for the guards and that community. But you can use those funds to put, you know, into use for something else. Why not turn it into a university? Why not for, allow the guards to go back to school and learn how to become teachers? Allow them to go ahead on back to training. You know, build something else with it. It's there, but that prison needs to be torn down. It's very old. Mm -hmm. You know, it's ran down. You can only back up, you know, in your vehicle when they're transporting prisoners. You have to, I don't know, ask to see. Huh. Ask to see how do the transportation get in and out. Right. You have to back up down a hill. <laughs> and the bus can actually flip over. There's no guardrails. Oh, wow. This is how old and torn down this prison is. Yeah. Just imagine the big school bus backing up in order to leave. Right. But you get one slip, you go over to the side of the cliff, and it tops. Wow. Now you're looking at a major issue where people can sue the Department of Correction because there's no guardrails on it. You look at the cells, they're torn down. Mm. You know, so one day, 
I think it will be good for people in our here in society just to go look at it, what it looks like walking through. Don't go through the main entrance of the lobby. You know, yeah. go through the back where all the movement exists, mm -hmm. where the daily activity, you know, come and go. That's in the back. All movement exists in there. It's tore down. That's why they want to tear it down. And that's why they want to shut it down. So the fight to oppose that, you know, being shut down, it's about the economy. So how can people find more information about just leadership and the work you're doing? You can, you can go to Close the Creek. You know, we have our Close the Creek Facebook page, our uh, Instagram, as well as our Close the Creek Twitter. You can go to justleadershipusa.org. You can, you know, log on. You know, we're on there. We're doing it. We're hosting events throughout the city of Philadelphia and even in other parts of the, of the country. You know, that's something that we're doing. So we're not hard to find, but we're looking for everybody else, too, because we want everybody else to be involved in the work in shutting jails down. We're compelling our elected officials to invest money back into the communities directly impacted, shutting down these EMs, ending this slavery of probation and parole restrictions and restraints that hinder a male or female from living their lives. And we definitely, definitely want to eliminate this risk assessment. So speaking of probation, I'll see you in Harrisburg on September 24th, the Absolutely. big lobby day for probation reform. September the 24th, I will be there as long as the parole agent approve right. of me to travel right. to lobby day. You know, right. That's something, isn't it? That, that is something. You have to get permission to go 100 miles to the, to the Capitol to advocate for reform. Yes. All right, Bobby. Well, thanks for the time. I really appreciate your insights. It's great to talk with you. Thank you very much as well. Thank you to Bobby Harris for his time and his insights. You can find Just Leadership on Twitter at Just Leaders USA as well as on Facebook. We talked at the end of our conversation about the lobby day for probation reform at the state capitol on September 24th. There will be a link for information about the lobby day in the show notes. If you're enjoying speaking freely, I hope you'll give us a rating and review on your podcast app of choice. That's how people find the show and we get the word out about the work of defending civil liberties. That brings episode 30 to a close. The editor of Speaking Freely is Amy Giacomucci. Our music is from bensound.com. The executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania is Reggie Shuford. I'm Andy Hoover. Until next time, be free.